Hey guys, welcome back to That Florida Feeling. How are you guys today? Happy Friday. I know if you're like me and you work in retail, you're like, man, it's another day. I'm lucky if I get two days off in a row. <laughs> but if you do actually get a weekend, I hope you get to do something fun. Um, if you're on spring break, I hope you're having fun. If you've already had spring break, I hope you had fun. If you're going to have spring break, I hope you're looking forward to doing something fun. Because um, that is definitely the time in the season right now for Florida. Uh, did you guys see that spring training is back? I love it. Did you guys see my video? Oh, I'm so excited to get to go to a game. I love it. I love baseball. Um, it's like a little added bonus living in Florida in February, March. I was just glad that they got a few games in this time. So, thank you guys for understanding that I needed to move the poll in question to Wednesday. I really appreciate that. Tuesdays just weren't happening with work and life and things. So, thanks for understanding that. I really appreciate it. Thanks also for uh, telling me what you guys do for hurricanes. I, I'm one of those, sometimes I'll pack some boxes in May, like if Publix is having a sale or when dixie or wherever you shop. Um, side note, I miss Lucky's Market. That was a cool thing for Florida. Anyways, um, yeah, I'll, like if Publix has BOGOs on like canned veggies and stuff, I'll pack boxes with that and I always make sure I got a bag of cat food and you know, if you see flashlights or batteries on sale, go ahead and buy some of them. You can never be too stocked up on that. Um, and I, I get like one or two, maybe a tote going. But I'm not like one of those hardcore preppers that like, this is the hurricane supplies you cannot touch. Nah, man. If I remember I put something in a hurricane box and I want to eat it, I'm going to go get it out and probably eat it. <laughs> um, but, you know, I guess we all do need to prepare in our own ways. Um, thankfully the last really bad one I want to say was Irma. That was a beast of a hurricane. I'll be happy if we don't ever have another one of those again. Um, but thank you for interacting with that and responding and telling me what you guys do. It's always fun to hear other people's opinions on Florida and living in Florida. Um, I know that most of us are ready for it to be summer. Uh, if not because you have some, some, some fun summer plans or something to do, maybe looking for a new place to go. And I thought that this week's episode would really just kind of show you guys some hidden Florida attractions or some that really people don't really know about or they haven't heard of yet. So we're going to call this random Florida because I just picked spots on the Florida map and we're like, oh, I remember that place. That was kind of cool. I'm going to tell you all about it. Um, so I guess I did a Florida roadside attractions when I first started the podcast. I guess this could be part two. I don't know. I just want people to know that Florida has so much more to offer than theme parks, beaches, and outlet malls. Um, the site really is diverse. Um, it does have something for everybody. Of course, if you're a beach lover, it's got plenty of that. If you're an adventure, adrenaline person, theme parks, roller coasters, skydiving experiences on iDrive, you, you can find things. Um, if you're an outdoor lover, tons of state parks, trails beaches again things like that so I kind of try to pick something for everybody uh these are just places that I think are really cool and that I don't feel get the proper love that they deserve so the first place I want to talk to you guys about is actually a state park um I could have included it in one of my state park episodes but I just think it's a really cool and interesting state park a little bit of a history nerd so if you're a history lover this one's more for you um we're going to talk about the San Marcos Appala Appalachie Historic State Park so, the park is located in St. Marks, Florida, which is in the Panhandle in Wakula County. So, not exactly the armpit, more towards Panama City. Um, and 
this state park is really centered around the historic part of Florida's history. Um, this was a Spanish colonial fort um, known as Fort St. Mark's by the English and the Americans, but it was originally built by the Spanish. The fort was actually built in 1759, and it was a stone fort, although it did not help start out as a stone fort. It ended up as a stone fort, and it was really put there to help keep control of the area by the Spanish and then the British and then the Americans and then the Spanish again. And so basically this fort has seen a lot of history and had a lot of flags flying over it. Um, so as you can tell by that, the fort did swap hands a few times, was controlled by the Spanish, the English, the U.S., and lastly, surprisingly, by the Confederates during the American Civil War. So it does have a really long history, um, which is kind of a cool thing about this site. Um, the site was originally home to a wooden fort built by the Spanish in 1679, and the area was called San Marcos de Apaleche. Um, and this was part of their colonial expansion into northwestern Florida. And the fort really helped the settlement in the area kind of grow. Um, it really didn't start to grow until about 1733, but the fort stood there long before that. But I guess with expansions, and I think this is true even through American history, you'd have a fort, and then you'd have people come to the fort, and then you'd have people settle around the fort, and I think that's kind of one of those instances here, and the fort actually stood until a hurricane knocked the original structure, so the wooden structure over in 1753, so the settlement was there for about 20 years before the hurricane came, um, and then once the hurricane knocked that one down, the Spanish knew that they still needed a fort, they needed it for trade, for safety, for settlement, and just for general protection. So they decided that a stone fort would be better. And so they started building this stone fort in 1759. And they used the fort really to resist bombardments from other ships. Of course, because at that time, European superpowers were set on expanding their territories as well. And the fort stood and was used for settlement and trading. And it was actually abandoned to the Indians at some point. And it actually more or less stopped being a fort more just kind of became a trading post and it continued that especially after the Spanish ceded the territory to Great Britain after the French and Indian War so when Great Britain got it they decided to place a British garrison there so for protection settlement and trading posts again and the fort really was useful during that time and then it traded hands again after the American Re Revolutionary War, it actually went back to Spain first, because um, Spain took over West and East Florida again. And the Spanish actually occupied the fort again up until 1783, and they continued to strengthen their defenses in the area, because um, the Spanish wasn't going to give up on Florida that easily. And then, thanks to the American Revolution and America being a new country, people decided that they wanted to move around and settle in this new country and so they kind of started to head south out of the colonies in Georgia and so after the American Revolutionary War they kind of started to settle in that area and so the fort was there again for trading and protection and the fort was actually used in the Seminole Wars uh, after it was seized by Andrew Jackson in 1818 and the U.S. actually kept occupation of the fort for over a year and they established the Fort St. Mark's Military Cemetery. Um, the cemetery is still there today. It actually held 19 men. Um, fun fact, who mostly all died from diseases, not from any military tragedy. The fort was officially purchased from Spain in 1821, and then in 1859, the federal government kept it and decided about that time to build a marine hospital. And they used 
the stones from the fort and other materials from the old fort to move into this hospital. And that's what they used to build it. And the hospital was there to provide care for the sick seamen, military uh, personnel, and yellow fever victims in the area, which, of course, was a big thing back then. And the fort stood, and it was used, and the hospital was used um, up until the Civil War. And it was actually taken over by the Confederacy in the Civil War after Florida ceded from the Union. And the Confederacy held it for a while, but it was actually taken back by the Union in 1865. And that was the last time the fort changed hands. Now, the remains of this fort still stand at the site of the state park. The state park has a visitor center and a museum that were built on the foundation of the old hospital. It also has a replication of the stone well and a retaining wall constructed constructed based on archaeology documentation from that time period. So it's a really cool little place, especially if you're into history and you want to see what Florida looked like. Sorry, my cat is... Papatine, I need you to do something. There we go. Um, sorry, y'all. He wants to be included. But, so, you can go see a replica of the stone wall. You can go see the old, um, foundation, I guess. It, partial walls, but mostly the foundation of this old fort and hospital. Um, and it's just a really interesting place to go and look around. It's also a really pretty place. The Panhandle has some beautiful views, guys. And the park is no exception to this. It boasts beautiful views from the uh, nearby St. Mark's River. And the river at this point actually joins into the Wakula River and then flows into Appalachia Bay. And so this is actually sits on Tucker's Point. The south part of the park is called Tucker's Point, And it's a beautiful place to take in the scenery of the waterfront. And the park has a picnic area with tables and grills. And you can really make a full afternoon of this. Um, the cool thing about this park, though, is they also allow fishing. So, a lot of people actually go to this park just for the fishing. It's a really excellent spot since it's unique because it's where fresh and saltwater fish can be caught. Um, and most of the fish caught there are redfish, speckled trout, sheep's head, and even largemouth bass are known to frequent the area. Now, unfortunately, this park was damaged by Hurricane Michael. Um, it has since been restored, and it lets you enjoy the trails, nature's picnicking, fishing, and exploring some of Florida's history. Now, the museum does have displays that include pottery and tools that were unearthed in the area, and it really kind of shows you how they lived during the time of the original wooden fort and even through the Spanish and Great Britain occupation period. You can go see the military cemetery. You can see a Spanish bomb-proof. And you can just really take in this Florida day as you explore this fun Florida State Park. It is open year-round. There is a fee to get in. Um, but if you're a history lover or you just want to take in some really cool nature views, I definitely recommend checking out this state park. I feel it's one of the lesser known. And I feel that the Panhandle has so much to offer. And there's so many cool, interesting places you can just stop off and explore. So if you're looking for somewhere new in the Panhandle, maybe you should check out um, the state park. Now, the next place I want to tell you about is kind of actually near Orlando. It's actually in Apopka, and it's the Kelly Park Rock Springs. And the park is actually in Orange County, so it's definitely very near Orlando. Um, and I'm sure if you're from Orlando, you're like, yes, don't tell people about this. We know about this. But it's actually a really cool place. I feel like it's a little slice of paradise outside of the hustle and bustle of Orlando. And it lets you enjoy Florida's natural features. Um, it is $3 to get in, but you can spend the whole day there. And it's mostly known for its natural free-flowing spring. 
Now the park does feature a natural free-flowing spring that sits at 68 degrees year-round and you can tube down it. And of course tubing is the favorite thing to do in this park. Um, yes, you can rent them at the park if you don't have your own. And it's not a long float. It only takes you about 25 minutes to get down the actual spring. But there's a little fun trail that lets you walk back and take in nature. Um, you can also kayak, canoe, and paddleboard from the park. And it launches at their Camp Joy site. Now you can spend the whole day in this park. You can tube, swim, go on the little trails, picnic, and they even have camping. Uh, you can camp at sites such as pavilions or cabins, tent sites, and all of it is first come, first serve. So I recommend either reserving it or getting there early. The campsites do have grills, electricity, and water access. And so the park does have a full service concession um, with food and necessary items if you forgot something or if you're hungry that day and you didn't plan ahead, which I tend to never do. So they did, they did think of people like me who, well, crap, now I'm hungry. What do I do? So I think this is a cool little park uh, just to go and escape Orlando and explore these springs and just kind of small part of paradise in central Florida that doesn't involve a roller coaster, a mouse, a wizard, anything like that. So if you're looking for something fun to do in Orlando and you don't want to drive too far, maybe check out um, Kelly Park and Rock Springs. It's just something fun and different to do. The next place in Florida I want to... I'm sorry guys, my cat is mad that I'm now not paying attention to him. Um, the next place in Florida I want to mention really gives you kind of an otherworldly experience and it's right here in the Sunshine State. It's actually not far from Orlando either. It's on Cocoa Beach. Or it's off of Cocoa Beach, I should say. Um, and, of course, Cocoa Beach is known for its beautiful beaches, fun shops, and restaurants. But it's also known for its bioluminescence kayaking tours. And you're like, what did you just say? And it's bioluminescence. Um, now, what is bioluminescence? Bioluminescence actually is a phenomenon that happens year-round when either comb jellies or plankton are growing. Um, and you can see them glow in the moonlight. It's kind of cool, actually. And the best time to see this phenomenon is really May to November, so kind of the warmer months. And you can see them growing. And they give off a beautiful glow from the moonlight at night. And you can kayak through lagoons to see these awesome events take place in nature. And it actually happens from, I would say, Titusville. Maybe down just a little bit past Cocoa. And so the Indian River Lagoon is like the probably the best place to see this. But there's plenty of places that will take you on tours. It is a night thing. Um... And you do get to see nature. Uh, they're kind of, it's, it's just really beautiful. It just looks like you're at another world. You just look in the water and there's all these beautiful blue-green glowing things. Um, it's just kind of cool. It kind of reminds me of parts of Pandora and the Avatar Animal Kingdom. Um, with the way that the blues and the greens look. It's really pretty. So it's definitely something fun and different to check out. Um, you should go closer to the new moon. Um, since if you are looking at water at a full moon, you're just going to see... More of the reflection of the water on the full moon. So, new, you don't have to go on a new moon, but the new moon or the lower moonlight is recommended. Uh, and you get to paddle through glowing waves of blue or green as you take in this natural phenomenon. And it's just something different to do. Uh, so, I definitely recommend that. Especially if you're a water enthusiast, a kayaker, a nature lover. Definitely go check out a bioluminescence kayaking tour. It's just something fun and different to do. The next place I want to tell you about is really really cool to me and it's really cool because it's one man's love that got has been preserved and so many people have learned from it and it's called the kampong 
And the Kampong is actually a nine-acre botanical garden in the Coconut Grove neighborhood of Miami. Side note, Coconut Grove is one of the oldest neighborhoods in Miami. And the garden is actually one of five of the nonprofit National Tropical Botanical Gardens. And it's also a learning center. Now, the Kampong actually started as a winter home by famed horticulturalist Dr. David Fairchild and his wife Marion, and they established this home in 1916. And this was their place to go and relax and stay warm in the winter months. And Fairchild is actually the horticulturalist that is responsible for introducing over 30,000 plant species or varieties into the U.S. Not plant, plant, plant species and varieties into the U.S. He's the reason that we can grow so many different versions of things and the reason we know so much about other parts of the world and their species. And of course, when he did his work, he also brought his work home, literally, and he did his work at his home in Florida. And he created a garden that he grew and he cultivated from his travels. And he would grow non-native species of plants, create new subspecies of plants, and all of this from his winter home in Florida. And he really did it for his own research and so others could learn from it. Um, he did this up until 1945 when he passed. And of course, when he and Marion were both passed, the house was purchased by another botanist and a preservist who wanted to preserve the work and the gardens because they knew how important this would be for future references. Now, the garden is on the National Register of Historic Places, and the Kampong is still home to the house that the Fairchilds lived in, and it shows off their amazing gardens. And the gardens include some amazing, beautiful plants, such as a pomelo, over 23 different types of avocados, 65 varieties of mangoes. I didn't even know there were 65 varieties of mangoes, but apparently there are. An 80-year-old banyan tree and an ancient tree that weighs nearly 50 tons. Different types of palms, flowering trees, ficus, and even bamboo. And the Kampong is also home to, the inter to an educational center, a dormitory as a place for visiting researchers to stay, and a few cottages used for either visiting researchers or conferences. So this is still very much an active and working garden. But you can visit the Kampong during certain times of the year. You must have advanced reservations as they only have three tour times available only three to four days a week. It's a two-hour self-guided tour. You get to see new species. You get to see plants that you've never heard of. Plants that you... Like, they even said that there's an egg fruit and a peanut butter fruit plant. What I, What is an egg? What is this? I thought these things only existed in games like Sims where they just made stuff up. Apparently, those are real things. This is so cool. I really want to go to this place. Um, but on your tour, you also may see pe peacocks. Or you may even see a manatee as your tour takes you out to the bay. So that's kind of cool. You never really know what you'll see. It's not the same tour twice. Um, you do also see the main beautiful masterpiece of a home that sits on this estate um, before you can wander the grounds. Of course, it is only a two-hour self-guided tour, so um, use your map wisely. <laughs> And the gardens are a working conservation area, so they obviously don't want their work to be disturbed. As I said, they're only open three to four days, depending on the time of the year. Um, that is usually Tuesday through Friday. And if you're just looking for a hidden paradise in Miami, you should definitely book this self-guided tour through a world-renowned garden that took one man's passion and continued it on for future generations. I, for one, really want to go to the Kampong, and I am looking forward to going back to Miami very soon so that I can visit this beautiful place. I also just really want to see the peacocks and the manatees, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> the next place I want to share with you is the Morikami Museum and Japanese Gardens in Delray Beach. The museum and gardens is 
just beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. Um, they they showcase Japanese arts and cultures, and it's really cool because what this museum came from was again one man's passion. Um, the campus actually has two main buildings and a very I'm not going to say this right, Roji Inn Japanese Gardens, a bonsai garden, a library, a gift shop, and a Japanese restaurant called the Cornell Cafe, which has actually been featured on Food Network. Now, the park and the museum are named after George Morikami, who came from, I'm not going to get this right, Miyazu, Miyazu, Japan, and he settled in Florida. He actually donated his farm to be used as a park. He wanted people to continue to learn about his culture. Um, George was the only member of the Yamato colony in Florida to stay in Delray Beach after World War I. And the museum itself was actually opened in 1977. Now, the Rogian Gardens were built starting in 1993. And the Murakami Park, which is where the museum stands, also features a picnic area and a playground. The park also has a Challenger Astronaut Memorial and a Yamato Pioneer Memorial. The Murakami Museum and Gardens host many festivals each year. And the festivals draw many visitors from all over the state, as well as out of the state, especially during the Lantern Festival in October. They also hold a Hatsumi Fair in April. Both of these festivals draw large crowds, and they allow food and art vendors to be on the grounds. The Lantern Festival also features a drum performance and an interactive dance routine, and you even get to personalize your lantern before releasing them into the center like it's sunsets. Now, the museum does have rotating exhibits and is designed in the style of a Japanese villa. They do have one permanent exhibit, and that is the history of the Yamato colony in Boca Raton. And the museum actually has over 7,000 artifacts that make up Murakami's collection. The gardens are actually composed of six different gardens and were finally completed in 2001. And they're actually based off six famous garden styles through Japanese, through Japan's history. The gardens were meant to be viewed, though, from above, from a temple, and not walked through. Still really gorgeous to look at. The museum and gardens are 15 a person, and they're open from 10 to 5, Tuesday through Sunday. The cafe is open from 11 to 3, on the same days as the grounds. And these grounds are really beautiful to look at and to take in Japanese culture. And it's just another fun way to step away from the hustle and bustle of Florida, especially South Florida, and learn about, you know, people who came to Florida and how they've left their lasting impact. So the last place I want to tell you about is not in Florida, but off Florida. And it's actually Molasses Reef. And Molasses Reef is off Key Largo in the Keys. And this reef is a coral reef that is located in the Florida National Marine Sanctuary. And the reef itself lies southeast of Key Largo, and it is within uh, the preservation area. The, sorry, the sanctuary preservation area. The reef was marked by an unmanned reef flight for most of the 20th century. And the reef is actually a very popular place for scuba diving and snorkeling, with many dive sites, ma dive sites marked by mooring buoys. And the dive sites really allow you to take in the marine life, the coral formations, you know, just something fun, simple to do, but it also lets you take in a shipwreck. So that's kind of cool. Buoy number seven is actually referred to as winch hole, windlass wreck, or the winch. Because there is a mechanical winch from the, why do people name boats like this? The Slobodanya. And this winch actually lies at the bottom of the ocean. The 170 foot wooden schooner sank here in 1887. But it's not the only wreck in Molasses Reef. The Wellwood 
is probably the most well-known wreck from Molasses Reef. And the Wellwood was a freighter carrying pelletized chicken feed when it ran aground on Molasses Reef in August of, eight, of 1984. And the grounding unfortunately caused destruction of over 5,800 square meters of living coral and injured 75,000 meters of reef habitat. Now, the vessel was removed by the Coast Guard, and NOAA coordinated efforts uh, to restore the damaged reef because they knew what a loss this was to coral and marine life, um, and just in general, just not a cool thing because somebody wasn't paying attention. So they actually placed reef modules in the inner injured area to help new coral colonization take place. They also took transplants from Pickle Reef to start new coral growth or to encourage more coral growth. Now the site has actually since seen growth and somewhat re responded. And it is still a popular spot for diving today due to the large boulder coral, y'all words, marine life, clear waters, and easily accessibility from the Keys. Molasses Reef is a beautiful area that is worth exploring if you want to see a whole other world living just off the coast of Florida. I hope I've given you guys some new places to explore in Florida on your travels around the Sunshine State. Whether it's a weekend getaway, a family trip, or just a solo trip just to do something for yourself. I hope that in your travels you see beautiful views, amazing wildlife, eat some super delicious seafood, take in some local produce. But I hope on your travels you do not see Florida Man. Because we know that he is out there. And today's Florida Man headline really sums it up. Florida Man arrested for trying to get alligator drunk. I guess there are just not enough signs around the state of Florida that said, do not molest the alligators. Hmm. So this story actually comes from us from South Florida in Hope Sound. Florida Man caught an alligator with his bare hands and then decided that the alligator needed a few beers to calm down from the whole incident. There were actually two men. Uh, two guys tried to catch the alligator one actually did and then they both held the alligator and fed him beers um before releasing him back into the wild i guess they thought he was calm enough at that point but that's not really why they're the smartest of florida men the smartest of florida men is that they decided to record themselves because no one would believe that they got an alligator drunk you're right i wouldn't but thanks to their smartness and their recording the video was somehow obtained, and both men were arrested and charged with unlawfully taking an alligator. Y'all, leave the wildlife alone. Also, leave Florida men alone for your own safety. I don't know which is worse. Well, guys, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of New Places in Florida. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Share the group on Facebook if you can or want to. I appreciate it. Don't forget to look for the question and poll on Wednesday now. Um, email me, message me, reach out however you can if you have suggestions, comments, or you just want to say hi. I really appreciate it. I love interacting with you guys. You guys are amazing. Uh, I do hope that everybody has a great week. Again, if you're on spring break or going on spring break, have fun. If you're off spring break, summer's almost there, guys. Don't forget to drink water, be nice to one another, wear your sunscreen, and as always, guys, that's your daily dose of sunshine.